turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 in just a moment. Darrell Loomis was a truck driver. He hauled goods from Cincinnati to Atlanta, and his favorite spot on the route was Joe's Diner. He tried to eat there as often as he could. And so one summer day, he pulled into Joe's Diner and found his usual spot at the counter and ordered what he usually ordered. He ordered a meatloaf sandwich, mashed potatoes, and iced tea. Pretty soon in the distance, you could hear the roar of motorcycle engines and a gang of motorcycle, uh, a, a motorcycle gang pulled into the parking lot of Joe's Diner, parked just beside Daryl's tractor trailer truck. When they walked inside, the leader of the gang immediately spotted Daryl. And he said, who is this little sissy sitting at the counter? Daryl didn't pay any attention to him. They formed a semicircle around Daryl, the motorcycle gang, and started making fun of him. One of them reached over, took his glass of iced tea and poured it on top of his head. Daryl calmly took his handkerchief and wiped his face and continued eating. Another one reached over, took a a handful of his mashed potatoes and poked them in his face and then wiped his hand on Daryl's back. Daryl just finished eating, calmly got up, paid Joe and walked out of the diner. Motorcycle gang looking after Daryl said, that sure ain't much of a man. And Joe looking out of the diner's window said, no, he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over 12 Harveys in the parking lot. <laughs> When Jesus came as the Messiah, he wasn't at all what people expected. I'm sure that many of those people looked at Jesus and said, man, what a wimp. He sure isn't much of a man. But Jesus never answered their ridicule. He took all the abuse the world had to throw at him. He was ridiculed, humiliated, spat upon, whipped, crowned with thorns, and then crucified on a cruel cross. They didn't understand that the Savior had to die on that cross. They didn't understand the cross at all. And many people today still don't either. The cross is considered the universal symbol of Christianity. And for some people it's strange that an instrument of torture or death would come to symbolize such a movement of hope. And that's because they don't understand the cross. I mean, uh, the symbols of other faiths are much more upbeat and positive. The crescent moon of Islam, the lotus blossom for Buddhism, the five-pointed star of David. But if you don't understand the cross, all you have to do is look at it. There are two beams. One is horizontal, one is vertical. One points to God, the other points to man. One reaches up to the holiness of God, one reaches out for all mankind. The cross, you see, is the intersection where God forgave his children without lowering his standards. If I only had one more sermon to preach, I would want to preach on the cross. And I would imagine that the Apostle Paul felt the same way. From the moment Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he was obsessed with the power and the wonder of the cross. He wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Someone once said that the heart of Christianity is the Bible and the heart of the Bible is the cross. 
And the heart of the cross is the very heart of God. Some of the most powerful words about the cross are found in our passage of Scripture for today. So look with me as I read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. It says here, In Him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, He is made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ." Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house to worship today. Thank you, Lord, for this gathering of people who come here because we love you. Now, Father, help us to understand this passage of Scripture and help us to see how it applies to our lives as your people. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are here that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that they'll understand how it applies especially to them. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever noticed the last part of verse 14 before? According to verse 14, the Roman soldier wasn't the only one with a hammer in his hand that day. Almighty God, in a spiritual sense, was nailing something to the cross as well. What really happened on the cross? As I began to study this passage of Scripture, I realized that there were several divine tasks occurring at the cross simultaneously. At the same moment Jesus Christ was being nailed to the cross, God was nailing three other things to the cross as well. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. First of all, God nailed all our sin and shame to the cross. The reason we couldn't relate to a holy God on our own is because our lives are filled with wrong thoughts and wicked deeds. Look at verse 13 again, if you will. It says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You know what that means? It means that when we were stuck in our old sinful lives incapable of responding to God on our own God took the initiative it means that God crucified his son in order that we might have life God killed his son in order that we might live you know the Romans crucified thousands of criminals and it was customary for them to place a sign above the head of the person being crucified and the sign would list their name and would list the crime they were accused of. The sign was called a titulus from which we get our English word title. And maybe you've seen pictures of the crucifixion with the letters I-N-R-I uh, appearing. Those are the first four letters of the Latin phrase Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. After Pilate questioned Jesus, he said to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. 
but the Jews demanded the crucifixion of Christ. So Pilate mocked them by having that sign placed on the cross above Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, John says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And that sign made the Jewish leaders extremely angry. They demanded that Pilate change the sign that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Hebrew was the spiritual language of the Jewish people. It represented people who were in a covenant relationship with God. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. It represented uh, government and authority and conquest. Greek was the international language of culture representing philosophy, art, and commerce. And so without realizing it, Pilate was announcing to the whole world that Jesus is king over all areas of our lives. Spiritual, government, intellect, philosophy be everything when Jesus went to the cross the only crime that Pilate accused him of was being a king but there was an unseen titulus on the cross written by the hand of God and on it was listed all my sin and all your sin According to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, God placed our sin on Jesus when Jesus was hanging on the cross. The Bible says there in Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone is turned into his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That word laid in the Hebrew language means to be crushed. So on the cross, God placed all the crushing weight of your sin and my sin on Jesus. And have you ever considered the shame of the cross? The purpose of crucifixion was to execute a criminal in the most painful, most inhumane way possible. Victims were often crucified naked to increase their shame. But listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says about the shame of the cross. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, scorning its shame, means that even though Jesus found the sin and the shame of the cross revolting, he was, he was perfect. And yet he found that revolting, and yet he endured it anyway. He despised it, but he embraced it in his love. He endured what you and I deserved and so much more. And so friends, I want to tell you today, we have cause for rejoicing because we don't have to carry the weight of our sin and shame anymore. It was nailed to the cross. In fact, the Bible says that our sin is never even remembered anymore, hidden from God as far as the east is from the west. Now second, God nailed all the Old Testament regulations to the cross as well. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, listen, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. 
Now, there's a parallel passage of Scripture to this in the book of Ephesians that I think will help us better understand this passage in Colossians. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself is our peace and has broken down the middle wall of separation, the veil in the temple that separated us from God, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Many Christians today are confused about what parts of the Old Testament they should obey. For instance, they ask, is all the Bible true? And the answer is yes. And then they read a verse in Leviticus that says that you can't eat pork or catfish and you should never cut the sides of your head, uh, the hair on your head. And they ask, well, if all the Bible is true, then why don't we obey that part of the Bible? And here is the answer. At the cross, God canceled out all those Old Testament ceremonial regulations. He took them away, nailing them to the cross. In the Old Testament, there were hundreds of rules and regulations that God set down for the Jews regarding diet, festivals, hygiene, and the sacrificial system at the temple. There is even a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that says the way to deal with a rebellious teenage son is to take him outside the city gates and stone him to death. Parents don't even think about that. The Old Testament says that we're to worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, on Saturday and not on Sunday. So people ask, well, why don't we observe the Sabbath day and why don't we worship on Sunday? In order to better understand what was nailed to the cross, we have to understand that there is a distinction between the moral laws of God and the ceremonial regulations of the Old Testament. For instance, we don't have to obey the Jewish dietary laws because those are ceremonial regulations. But we do still have to obey God's moral law which says thou shalt not murder. We don't have to observe the Old Testament festivals which are ceremonial regulations, but we do have to obey the moral law of God which says thou shalt not steal. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, the Old Testament commandments all found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Our pastor has said it over and over again. Everything in the Old Testament, every sacrifice, every rule, every regulation, every festival, every book, every chapter, every verse pointed to Jesus Christ and what He would do on the cross. But you know what? Many people, even many people who consider themselves Christians, are still trying to live by those Old Testament regulations and rules. And folks, it's impossible to do. God knew that. God used that law to point to who Jesus was and what He would do. It's futile to try to keep a list of do's and don'ts. All those regulations pointed to Jesus. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, He was fulfilling all the Old Testament sacrificial regulations. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. As he breathed his last breath, he shouted to tell us die, which literally means it is finished or paid in full. About a quarter of a mile from the cross, uh, from where the cross was, stood the Jewish temple. And inside the innermost building were two rooms, one called the most holy place and the other the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies, it was believed that the presence of God himself would dwell in his Shekinah glory. 
And no person could ever enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And he could only enter for a few hours on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There was a large thick curtain hanging between those two rooms. <coughs> Excuse me. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, that large curtain was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and as thick as a man's hand, about 4 or 5 inches thick. The moment Jesus died, however, the Bible says that that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that man had nothing to do with it. It was all from God. And God was saying, you don't need the sacrificial system anymore. You don't need the ceremonial regulations anymore. And those priests had to be shocked. But after their initial shock, they repaired that curtain and they continued to perform the same old sacrifices at the temple until it was finally destroyed and A.D. 70 by the Romans. That's so sad. The Messiah had come, but they missed Him. The Savior had come to do away with their sins, but they went back to their sacrifices. Isn't that sad? But you know what? It's even sadder that there's still some Christians today who erect their own curtains and still try to live lives of legal observance instead of basking in the grace and forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Those regulations were nailed to the cross. We're set free from the law. We have the freedom to eat pork chops and catfish. And you can look at me and tell that I've exercised that freedom quite often. (laughs) There's a third thing that God nailed to the cross, Satan's power. Look at verse 15 again. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Principalities and powers refer to Satan and his demonic forces. I have a book written by Hal Lindsey entitled, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Satan is real and he's alive, but the truth is he hasn't been well since the cross. Because God dealt Satan a mortal wound at the cross. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews 2, 14 says so that by Christ's death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. And friends, Jesus suffered shame on the cross. There's no doubt about it. And Satan probably snickered at the shame Jesus endured on the cross. But you know what? When Jesus finished his work, Satan was the one who was shamed. To help us fully understand and appreciate what happened the last part of Jesus' life on earth, I want to think about it in terms of three marches, three processions, three parades that Jesus was involved in. First was his processional into Jerusalem. One week before Resurrection Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the coat of a donkey. We call this Palm Sunday because the people wave palm branches. If your Bible has section titles in it, uh, above the section beginning in Luke 19.28 describing Palm Sunday, the heading probably says the triumphal entry. Now those headings are not the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God. And that really wasn't a triumphant entry, it was a tearful entry. Luke 19.41 says that as Jesus approached the city, he wept over it. You know why? He knew those same people who were shouting crown him would soon be shouting crucify him. Those same folks yelling hail him as king would be the same ones yelling kill him in just a few days. The second procession was him carrying the cross along with two others who were crucified that day. After he had been beaten, tortured, and ridiculed, they laid a heavy beam across his back and made him carry it to the place called the skull. 
They spat on him and they mocked him as he walked the narrow streets of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the forced march of Jesus on the way to the cross? But it really wasn't forced, was it? The Jewish rulers and the Romans thought they were in charge of all this, but Jesus Christ himself was actually orchestrating the events of his death. He knew that this is what he had to do for us. There have been hundreds of paintings depicting the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and his procession to Calvary. But as far as I know, there have been no paintings concerning this next parade. Because this march was not witnessed by human eyes, and so it would really be impossible to reproduce it. The third procession was his march of triumph. Look at verse 15 again. It says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That phrase, triumphing over, means to lead prisoners of war in a victory procession. And the picture here is of a military procession leading captives of war. A victorious Roman general would lead his captives through the streets of Rome in a massive parade. And behind him would come the conquered kings, officers, and soldiers of the defeated nation, often in chains. They were openly branded as his victims and the spoils of his victory. This is one of the highest honors a Roman general could achieve. Some people picture the cross only as an instrument of death and defeat and torture. But the Bible pictures the cross as Jesus' chariot victory over Satan. As I said, no one ever witnessed this victory parade. But Psalm 24 is a prophetic picture of Jesus entering heaven after his death and victory on the cross. Would you listen to Psalm 24 verses 7 through 10? Lift up your head, O ye gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Satan didn't realize it at the time, but those hammer blows on the cross were the Hammer blows that would nail him to his coffin. Those hammer blows echoed and echoed for three days until Jesus Christ burst forth from the grave in victory. So, what does all this mean for us? Because of the cross, we don't have to suffer shame for our sins. Jesus did that for us. But the cause of the cross, we don't have to live according to a long list of do's and don'ts. Rather, we can live in the grace of God. Because of the cross, we don't have to fear the devil. He is a defeated foe. And the Bible says that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But may we never forget that there was something else nailed to the cross that day. More correctly, I should say someone else. It was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Back in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul is giving us the story of his spiritual heritage, he says there in verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remain with him for 15 days. When he got saved, he spent three years alone with the Lord 
And then he went to see Peter. The phrase there, to see, in the Greek is the word hystereo, from which we get our word history. And that phrase means to visit, to gain information. And so this could accurately be translated to say, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to gain information from Peter, and there I remained for 15 days. What do you think the Apostle Paul, who wrote our passage of Scripture for today, talked about with Peter? Peter, you know, there's been something that's really been pressing in on my heart. Something I just got to know, Peter. When you caught that largemouth bass on the Sea of Galilee, were you using an artificial lure or live bait? <laughs> Is that what he asked? Or Peter, when you guys were fishing and you tore a hole in your net, did you use cat gut or some woven fabric to repair that net? I don't think so. You know what I think Paul talked to Peter about? You know what I think Paul said to Peter? Peter, tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. And Peter, please tell me the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. And Peter, please tell me the grave where they laid him and tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see now, Peter. So Peter, stay and let me weep while you whisper that love paid the ransom for me. And you know what? Love paid the ransom for you too. Jesus went through all that torture, all that pain, all that ridicule because He loved you and He loved me that much. If you're here today, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I promise you there will never be a better time, never be a better place than people who love you, who are praying for you. And today in your heart, if you'll just tell Jesus that you love Him, that you appreciate what He did, if you ask Him to come into your heart and save you, He'll do what you ask Him to do. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. It's a promise that He'll keep. And so today, if you never trusted in Jesus, will you make that decision today? Will you bow with me, your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Fear without Jesus today. Jesus says, come to the cross and be saved. Find love and forgiveness and purpose. And to those who claim Him as Lord and Savior today, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Right now, in your mind and in your heart, I pray that you'll take a good long look at the cross. And see what Jesus has done for you. And see how much Jesus loves you. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine because that's how much He loved us. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer during this time of invitation, Lord. I pray that if there's someone here who's never trusted in You right now, they're praying in their heart, Lord, save me. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to You. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Change me. Make me a child of God. And then, Lord, for those Christians that are here today, I pray that we too will gaze at the cross and see the sacrifice that was made for us there. 
and then realize that nothing you ever ask of us is too much in response to what you've done for us. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing the invitation, Lord. I pray that you would move in our hearts. And I pray that your will be done. Nothing more, nothing else, nothing less. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name.